Well, knowing that we had all this special stuff this morning, I've got first a special surprise. It's a sermon in 12 parts, so (laughs) hunker down. All right, uh, all joking aside, uh, who here considers themselves a pretty good typist? You, you, You know how to use a keyboard? All right, right now, try to type your name without looking, all right? (laughs) <laughs> Everybody, you got that? Hello, my name is blah, blah, blah. Keep, keep going. Who, who can do that fairly quickly? You, you got that exercise? So it, it's this amazing thing, right? This is like a, one of the most common skills probably in the world right now that unites us, right? Is that we, we kind of have learned this thing. I actually have it up here on, on, on the screen. It doesn't have to be that way. You're all wrong according to this keyboard, <laughs> right? Who knows the history of the keyboard? I know I'm a bit of a tech nerd, right? Why do we have the QWERTY keyboard that we do? Because of typewriters. Who's typing their name on a typewriter? Who's doing that? Oh, okay. We have some people who are still using a typewriter. I didn't expect that. But the, the, right, what happens is whenever those, those keys go and hit the ribbon to go through there, they used to jam when you have letters that are too close to each other. So the QWERTY keyboard that you all just typed your name on is to make sure that it's as slow and as hard as you as possible to find those keys. It's to slow you down. So this guy came around, Dvorak, he invented this keyboard that doesn't have that limitation. It's actually meant to make it as optimal as you can. They actually have a heat map there of the most common letters in the English language. Look where they are, right where you think they should be. (laughs) It is like proven scientifically again and again, this is the fastest keyboard you could ever use. And you know who uses it? No one. (laughs) It hasn't won this contest. It's not probably going to win this contest. Dvorak is like this weird thing that you can kind of see alternate keyboard layouts. There's like some tech nerds like myself who have tried it and I have to retrain my brain because I just don't know. So this is going to be like relegated. At some point in time, we all use this archaic relic of a typewriter in our day-to-day lives. So one of the things I find interesting too, hidden gems, right? How many movies have you seen recently that have no marketing budget? Any? Ever? What are the best movies? Well, they're the big Hollywood blockbusters, right? These big things that, that we see. I don't know about that, right? Some of the times that I've been moved so much, it's not these blockbuster things with the big explosions. It's like these smaller things that for some reason just, just tend to, to move my, my soul. And, and there, there are things that I don't expect to come across. They're not even in theater. Sometimes they're like straight to Netflix or whatever. You're like, wow, that was good. I had never even heard of that. But somehow the algorithm picked me. So uh, college football reference for us. I don't know if, if you're a fan, but you know, this is going to be me. So just allow this for a minute. Colorado. Anybody know Colorado recently? The unbelievable hype train that has been Coach Prime, if you've been following this at long. Uh, a, a new uh, coach came to Colorado University, Deion Sanders. You may not have heard of him, right? And all the media's been talking about is Coach Prime this and Coach Prime that and all his press conferences and, and how big of a, of a, a characteristic, he, uh, cheery and, and, and emboldened coach he is and all these claims of nepotism with his son on the team and all this other stuff. Like, it's just been this big hype train in in college football. Well, they got up to rank number 19, and yesterday they got demolished (laughs) by the Ducks, which is, I always find funny, like that a duck could beat a buffalo. But this is the uh, this is the quote from uh, the the Oregon coach before the game. He said, "The Cinderella story's over. 
They're fighting for clicks. We're fighting for wins. There's a difference. This game ain't going to be played in Hollywood. We covered. Uh, oh, sorry, that, that's my next one. <laughs> this game. Is, <laughs> this game ain't being played in Hollywood. I, I think it's such an important thing for us to remember exactly this, right? What are we about? This hype train. One of the things, if you've heard me talk in this church, that that is like core to my central being, is no hype and no manipulation. Right? We, we, I prefer to be understated and overwhelmed by the Lord. Right? I don't want to come in with, with all the, the strongest language and all the, the over-the-top production and then be like, did the Holy Spirit show up? I don't know, but that fog machine was pretty lit. You know, I would like us to come in with humble hearts and just hope to see the Lord show up in a way that I know when we're playing three chords, something touched my soul as deep calls unto deep. And I had an experience with God himself. Um, so last week, we're, we're in this series on Colossians. And we're, we looked at, at this first chapter from the lens of Gnosticism. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, probably watch the video. Uh, Gnosticism's not something we talk about too much these days, but it is relevant. Uh, I'm going to be going again with the same text that we have, which is why we can fit it into the time that we have. You've, you've heard it. You know what we're talking about here. Um, but with less of that lens of Gnosticism. To recap, Paul wrote this letter. I've got a picture here from how long it takes to get from Rome to Colossae. So there you go. 29 hours by car. That's not so bad, right? You don't have a car if you're Paul. <laughs> this is not a close distance, and, and this is the over the land. So you can see Paul in Rome going to Colossae there uh, near, near Turkey. So um, what we look at today, I've got actually a picture of Colossae today. It's not much to look at. Here you go. The city is actually still in ruins. So there's a lot we don't know about this place uh, because they actually haven't even fully excavated it yet. So we saw how Paul approached these people that were struggling with heresy. He had common language. He had love. He had support. He treated other people differently throughout his history. Whenever there was other heretics, when there's people who were struggling, there was sin in the church, he sometimes came in with a pretty harsh tone. But what we saw was a very loving pastoral approach to the people in Colossae. Whether that's because he was an imperfect human and because he learned, I don't know. Whether it's specific for these people right here, we don't know. But what we saw was this beautiful look for people who are struggling with heretical gospels to come at them and saying, we pray for you every day, and using that same language to build this bridge. So we're going to be looking now, not the Gnostic overtones, but really at um, the supremacy of Christ. So starting in verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, verse 16, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and to through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight 
without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So if this were a strict pastoral letter, you'd expect there to be more personal and and situational context. If this were a strict theological letter, you'd expect a logical, apological, or or in-depth breakdown of the faith. This is what we believe, and this is why we believe it. What we have instead is an invitation to look at Jesus. That's what we've got. It's not this overly personal, again, Paul didn't found this church, nor was it something overly theological. It's just this thing of what unites us. What do we have in common? Let us look at Jesus himself and understand who he is. Paul so quickly turns to Jesus because I'm going to argue that is the perfect way to give us situationally relevant deep theology. When we try to make sense of this without looking at Christ, when we try to understand this without going to Jesus himself, we're grasping at straws. Whenever we start talking about uh, what, what we should do in, in, in church, even people like to talk about you know, having you know, contextually relevant sermon series, like, you know, well, how, six ways to have a better marriage, you know, well, that's good. Are we going to be talking about Jesus in that too, right? Or sometimes we go verse by verse through scripture, right? Which is kind of what we're, we're doing here. Well, how is that relevant to my life? Well, how do we find the, the, the road here to do this stuff? Well, Jesus, <laughs> because Jesus walked this earth, because Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. Because Jesus shines a light on those things in my soul that were relevant then and are relevant now. Because he is that bridge between the divine and the human in a way that is the most amazing picture of what life can be, could be, and should be. So Paul, with this, gives us a one-two punch on who Jesus is and what he has done. All right, let's jump into this. He is the firstborn of slash over all creation. All right, right now we're out of our depth. What, what does this even mean, right? This is one of those phrases that seems great and, and, and simple until you think about what it actually implies. You know, what does it mean? Is, is he the first as in, in order? Is he first in importance? Is he first chronologically? Or is it something else entirely? It, it's, a, it's a very like, he's the first born over all creation. Also, how are you over or of this? Like, it, again, it's such a biblical term And I think that sometimes we do ourselves a disservice to not realize the words that we're using and that they have some context. They have some reason that we're using this. So the Greek, not a huge help. (laughs) I've studied enough Greek to, uh, to be very dangerous that it's that, that, you know, where you have confidence that you shouldn't have that that's where my Greek knowledge, just so you're fully aware of where I'm at with that, but I can look it up and understand a lot of things, but the, the, the Greek not a huge help, but the context of these verses, I'll argue, is the Greek calls it the protokos. You hear that word in there, proto, like prototype. He's like that that first one of that. And then that word is of, of or over is just implied. It's not even explicit in the Greek. So he's the first all creation. <laughs> so what does that actually mean? What does that tell us about this whole thing? We can talk about pre-incarnation Jesus. Oh my goodness. We, we talked about this a little bit in, in Sunday school, and I use the phrase from the matrix often. This, this really bakes my noodle. Jesus was before he was born. That's pre-incarnation Jesus. That's, that's a truth. That's a theological truth that 
does not hold up to our own experience, right? This is something completely other. This is something completely divine that is beyond our own experience. That you can look back in Genesis and you can see the Godhead talking amongst themselves. Let us create man in our image. What is that R? If, if the Lord your God Israel is one, that means that the three as one is present there. And Jesus is somehow a part of this creation event of which he himself will be born into. And that's why it bakes my noodle. So messianic Jewish believers who struggle with the absence of Jesus in the Old Testament. I love this, right? So the thought is this. I, I'm a Jew. I've been growing up with this stuff. And I'm hearing about Jesus being the Messiah why didn't the Lord make it more clear in Scripture? Why, why doesn't he tell us, like, without these little prophetic nods or whatever, why isn't there? I love this one man who said he was legitimately struggling with this. You know, why didn't, why didn't the Father write the name of Jesus throughout Scripture? And so he said all the moment, like it was like a Holy Spirit inspiration, he started looking not for the, the physical letters of Jesus, but the meaning, the Lord's my salvation. And guess what? It is all over scripture. You can read in all the Psalms, every place that the name of Jesus, the meaning of Jesus is throughout all of the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament. Every time the Lord is my salvation is there, it's speaking the name of Jesus. And he said he saw the, the overlay of Jesus throughout the entire story from the beginning until incarnation Jesus stepped onto the scene. There's some other ideas in, uh, in, in biblical scholarship that this word for protokos doesn't actually mean the oldest, but the most imminent heir. So this is like sometimes you've, you've got siblings, right, where I'm not going to say it's your favorite or not, but sometimes people lose the birth order for, you know, different reasons. So this idea of being the, the first, of, of being the firstborn over this, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily chronologically the first. It just means that you are the one to take that inheritance. You're the one for whom it is going to be do. You're the one whom that, that picture comes to show, even if there's an older sibling. But I think that if we look at this with everything else we've seen in the New Testament, we see Jesus is the new Adam. He's the first fruits of new creation. He's the first of what we're to become embodied literally in his resurrection. And that, I think, is something we can relate to. I want to be like Christ. Right? Everything that came before him was changed when Jesus walked on the scene. He is the first of the, of the new man, of new creation, of, of what this can be to understand God's role and what he has called for us to become. So when we understand that, that it's not just that all of that first stuff was, it's not that it was a mistake, it was setting the stage for something new to come onto the scene. It was showing us for this very long picture, mankind, chance and chance again, can you follow the rules? Can you become holy on your own? Can you make your way back to the Garden of Eden? And a time and a time again, people showed, no, <laughs> we will fail. We will sin. We will turn to idolatry. We will turn to our own ways. We will lead ourselves into greed and into murder and into all these, these depravities of the human heart. And it's like, well, how long of a lesson do we need? A thousand years, two thousand? years, 3,000 years. How many attempts are we going to have to say, just give me one more shot. I know I can do it. And I feel like God gave us that shot and time and time again to say, no, we need a savior. We will break this covenant. We will turn away from you. And he goes, I will send my son. We have this beautiful picture then of when things were made right. So contextually, I think we get more help with this. In him, all things were created. This is back to the text. 
visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. They are created by him and for him. It's, it's almost constitutional in this, right? A government of the people, by the people, for the people. This idea that somehow in him, everything is by him and for him. It's this, this wonderful picture on, on the commonality of the human experience, that, that we are somehow in this for us, and it's by us, but it's him and for him and by him. The supremacy of Christ, the idea that, that he is the first of all of this, means that in all the things that we do, in all the things that we're trying to do, somehow does it reveal who he is. That's how we know what we're building. If we're building our own kingdoms, if we're building our own understandings, or if we're seeking first his kingdom, he is before all things. This word again is pro. It means before in both place and or in time. All right, I'm going to move on just in the interest of time. In him, all things are held together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So beginning and firstborn from among the dead, the context has finally helped us out. We know now, when we were talking about him being the first, we got a little bit of a picture of that. But for God has, was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. I want you to linger on what that actually is saying. God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. All the fullness of God. Of he who is before all things. He who created all things. He who knows all things. He who could do anything with a word. All of that fullness dwelling in Christ. This is the biggest idea of biggest ideas that there have ever been. That all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. What would God do if he met a prostitute? We know. All the fullness of God was dwelling in Jesus when he met prostitutes. What would God do if he was under the thumb of an emperor? We know. We saw exactly what God himself would do under the thumb of an evil man. What would God do if he was asked to pay taxes? We know. <laughs> it's recorded. We know exactly what God, the creator of all things, would do if he was asked to pay taxes to an unrighteous, unholy man. How is God's power manifest in flesh? We know. How is God's love shown towards a parent? We know. Granted, we wish there were more. <laughs> I think we wish that there was a whole lot more that, that we could put Jesus in different situations and say, how would Jesus handle the internet? We don't know. <laughs> but we're exploring that, right? By his Holy Spirit today, we're continuing to experience what this means as we work this out in context. But what is the supremacy of Christ? This is the crux of the whole thing. This is what I want you to hear. Why is the Dvorak keyboard superior to QWERTY? What does it mean for him to be supreme above all of these things? We're going to look ahead to answer that question. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, 
the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strangely contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. One of the previous national directors of, of the vineyard, a man named Phil Strout, talks about his spiritual father in a, in a story I think about often, that in the end of his life, this man who had walked faithfully with the church and served so well and so humbly was suffering from, from some mental decline, and, and, and he was becoming almost bitter and cynical and, and angry in some ways at the end of his life. And it really troubled you to watch somebody who had been so loving and kind and generous and, and, and just so full of humility have a change. And he struggled with this. He, he was asking the Lord, what is going on? Like, like, what is being revealed? What is happening here? And what he said is that there was still one more cup for this man to drink, for him to be perfected. The cup of suffering. Do we know who we are until we've experienced suffering? We avoid it like the plague. We tend to think that if it's suffering, it's got to be wrong. Something is broken. This isn't something that's going to reveal the goodness in me. It's something that's going to break me down. But in that is the opportunity to explore the depths of who Jesus himself was. Jesus suffered to be perfected. This is theologically very upsetting to many people. And I think it's something that we push under the, 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 the carpet because what does that tell me about what I should do? What does that tell me about my life and the choices that I live? We want to be born with a silver spoon in our mouth and to die with a golden spoon. That's not our gospel. There are no shortcuts and not everyone has the story, and that's what makes it so hard that we can look at some people who seem to just get by. They can have greed, they can have lust, they can have all this stuff, and then they seem to die fat, rich, and happy, and, and that doesn't seem to be my story. Why is that? It's just not fair. John twenty one twenty one. Peter asked, Lord, what about him? <laughs> Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. That's enough for us, I think, in most of this, but it's upsetting to us. What's it to you? Live your life. Enjoy your freedom. Develop your walk. Explore your faith. Love your master. Be faithful to your call. I think we get worried about the abstract and these other stories when we haven't yet lived out our lives to see what the Lord has called us to. Because I think many of us miss the supremacy of Jesus because we don't recognize Jesus still. We've been making a Superman-inspired Jesus where we just tack on superpowers thinking that we can make him better. You know, like, like Jesus can, can see into my heart. He's got like x-ray vision and he's, he's outside of time. So it's like time traveling, super buff Jesus who like is in all of these things. And if you think about it for half a second, you probably realize you've done this. Really. We've allowed him to become almost magical and mystical. We allow him to become something that the pages of our Bibles do not tell about because we don't know how to reconcile this. Because God of all gods, because the Lord of all lords, because the creator of all things died on the cross to complete 
salvation. And that's upsetting and troubling. And Superman didn't have to do that. (laughs) And it's almost embarrassing for us. The Christians were mocked with a picture of a donkey on a cross because they said, your God died. (laughs) Why are you worshiping a God who was not even strong in the flesh and was killed by the human emperor? That is our faith. May we not walk away from it. May we not try to make Jesus something that he is not because he suffered and died for us. It's a lack of understanding of the nature of God and the reality of this created world. We don't need a buff, time-traveling Jesus. He didn't walk around with a halo on his head. The supremacy of Jesus is found on the cross in shed blood. The real question, church, is is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? More than that, can you actually find a sense of awe with that? Not just is it sufficient for you, but does it cause your jaw to drop and to say that somehow he created the word, the world with a word and he died on the cross? He didn't need to show off. He didn't need to try to make things another way. He succumbed himself. He humbled himself. And that's my God. We've done the same thing with heaven. Leah's talked about this often. There's this movie that just absolutely bothers me. And if you like it, I'm so sorry. What dreams may come. This picture of, of, of life after death. And, and the, the one that just really set me off was this one thing about, where's God in all of this? Oh, he's up here somewhere. You know, oh, <laughs> you're completely mistaking what it means to be united with the creator in all things. And it's trying to give you this tailored heaven where it's just for me. I'm the center of the universe. So all of heaven, all of eternity is about me and my desires and my things. It's not about the kingdom of God. It's not about, about this whole arc of creation and recreation. It's about me and being together with my dog from my childhood and all the nice things that I want. My favorite foods are always on the table and it's, it's all about me. And we've done this and we've recreated heaven in the way that plays to our flesh. And we're doing the same things here on earth. We've made the gospel about prosperity. If you believe this, then you can have all the power. You can do all the things that you want. And the role of suffering has been misunderstood. Suffering is beneficial, but some of us turn into a persecution complex, right? We look for fights. We look to find those who disagree with it to say, aha, I'm being persecuted. Mine's going to be the kingdom of heaven when I die because you're persecuting me. And it's just a disagreement or just a question or just them working this out in context. Church, I think we are called often to enjoy the freedom we have because those times of trial and suffering will come, not to seek them out. I don't know that I know many Christians who live out their freedoms well. We tend to go off into the extremes one way or the other. That we're too afraid so we don't even try, or we abuse them and lead to to looking just like the world. Live out our freedoms well. Our faith has much, if not more, to say when times are tough or confounding or confusing. We've often realized that we've accepted a different gospel and we look for a different savior. We wring our hands and we ask why. But that was Jesus on the cross. He has a whole lot to say for us. 
So what I want us to get from this, from chapter one, Christ is supreme, but not in the ways that the world looks for. He didn't build an empire. He didn't live a long life. He was nothing physically that we would admire him. He was awe-inducing, but we have to have eyes to see. We have to have minds that can understand. We think that we're living in this enlightened age and this age of blessing, but the problem is that enlightenment, that blessing causes us to look away, causes us to forget. And when the day of trial comes or when the season of COVID hits, we end up turning on the gospel and fighting for personal freedoms or arguing about our own gospels. Paul makes this jump in here. He suffers not just for himself, but for the church. He doesn't suffer for himself, but he suffers for the church, which he suffers for Christ's body. How are we benefited when someone suffers for us? And if this doesn't cause us to look once more again in the face of Jesus, to realize what is deserving, but what is right, to realize that, that there is something that, that I am not going to have to walk through because someone has loved me more. When we know that there's a parent who sacrificed their nights or their evenings working a second or third job so that there's food on the table. When we realize that, that somebody has done something to show me love may not lead us to become selfish and extravagant and say, yes, because I'm the center of the universe, but to realize instead, this is love. May I love in the way that I have been loved. May I show somebody else the depths of what is possible in the kingdom of God because of what has been done for me, that we all become Christ-like. We all become willing to do what it costs, whatever it costs, because the gospel is more important than me being comforted. And yet somehow it includes my comfort. <laughs> that it is of us, by us, for us, because of he is our head, and we follow as he walked. We follow as he lived.